You can be seated. Good morning. It's so good to see everyone and welcome you back from Thanksgiving week. Pray that you had a a great time with your family, friends, however you were able to gather. Pray that it was a a blessing for you. And um, I also want to uh, just tell you a a word of thank you um, for uh, your patience here this morning and gathering with us in uh, this place. One of the sweet things of Thanksgiving for my family, and I hope in some way you you perhaps were mindful of this, but as we uh, went around, as our tradition is uh, goes, sharing things that we are thankful for in our family at the Thanksgiving dinner table, um, it came up more than once how thankful we were to God for um, what he has done in our church family, what we see him doing, and even the provision of this building and this property and this space was something that we kept reflecting on in the midst of a lot of challenging things this year. We have seen uh, his goodness to us as a church. Um, and with that, though, you are arriving each Sunday morning. Often, if you're with us and if you're watching online, you might see a little bit, some color palettes changing, at least in the background. Uh, you're arriving into a construction zone. And so uh, I just want to thank you in advance for your patience, ask for your continued patience in that. I can tell you that each week uh, we are working with the team that is doing the actual construction work, and they're not members of City Church. Uh, We give them a hard stop. We've got to be ready for worship on Sunday morning. And sometimes they accommodate that really well. And uh, there's going to probably be days where it's not as uh, as noticeable that they got done on time. And so we're gathering in the midst of some chaos in kids' church and with our littles coming up in this next week. But I can tell you, we are doing, as a leadership team, our our construction team that's really leading the charge in this is doing the very best we can to provide a a beautiful place to worship. We have new floors this morning. You can't see that online, but um, they are unstained, unfinished hardwood, and they will be stained and finished this week, we hope, um, and there'll be some new things coming next week. So I just wanted to let you know of that and just thank you in advance for your patience as we navigate through this. Uh, What we're trying to do is make sure that we can just at least still gather for worship each Sunday morning. We might be gathering in a little bit of chaos, but gathering in chaos is better than not gathering at all in our minds. And so um, we are striving to do that. Also, before we get to our sermon uh, text, Matthew, um, continuing in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, I uh, just want to uh, sort of pick up on what Pastor Kyle and Sherry and um, uh, uh, Caitlin read for us and led us through in this opening weekend of Advent, this, uh, this day where we begin to look forward to the coming Messiah and look forward, as uh, Sherry and Caitlin read for us, with hope and the hope that Christ brings us. And I can't help but think perhaps um, more than any other year, the year 2020, we need Advent. We need to pause and we need to be thinking forward, looking expectantly on the return of our Messiah, but also looking backwards on the fact that our Messiah came and so that we have hope. And there are other things that he came to deliver us into, to bring to us. And, And so I just want to exhort and challenge and really plead with you and ask, Let us be a people of God who live in Advent, live with expectation, and live out the hope that we profess to have. All around us, and I know that you see it as well as I do, out in the world, in the culture, there is angst and anger, as we talked about last week, anxiety, hopelessness, 
talk of all the evils that seem to be winning in the world, political strife, all of these things. And none of them change the fact that Jesus came, will come again, and his kingdom has been established and will be established and will last forever and ever no matter what happens else in the world. And so let us commit our lives over this next month as we look forward to the coming of the Messiah, look forward to Christmas. Let's not be a people who participate in that. Let us this week keep our eyes and our hearts and our minds focused on the hope of Christ and let nothing else get in the way of that. Just don't participate in the games that are being played out there in the world. But dive fully headlong into the word of God and into the hope of Christ. And let us see and just prayerfully hope and look forward to what Jesus might do in and through us as that is our purpose and our aim as we commit to living that out. So let's be people of Advent, waiting expectantly for the coming Messiah. Now Jesus did come and he gathered his disciples not too long after he began his earthly ministry on a hillside and delivered what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've been with us for a number of weeks, this is our 14th, excuse me, our 15th message, the 14th that I have taught on this text, working our way through this sermon, trying to understand what it is that Jesus is teaching us and allowing his words to influence and direct our lives and guide us and to really ultimately define the way that we live. Again, just as I said about Advent, when we think about this year and all the things that have gone on, we realize, I hope, it's caused us to become desperate for God in the anxiety and in the pain and the frustration and and, and all of the things that we see out there. We realize that we aren't God, and so we need God. And so what sometimes, though, is perhaps missed, missed, although we acknowledge our need for God, We sometimes forget that God has a plan and God has a purpose in what he is doing and he is accomplishing exactly what he intends to accomplish. I love the quote, I'm often reminded from my brother Frank, one of our elders, that there's not a singular molecule in the universe that is out of place right now. Every molecule is doing exactly what the God of the universe says that it should be doing. And in God's plan, in his purpose, he has brought heaven to earth through the church. Through people who profess faith in Christ and live that faith out. And so Jesus began with the Beatitudes teaching us how we are to display the glory of God to this world. Through the Beatitudes, Jesus, in a sense, defined us, as we said, as Christians. This is who we are. We are the blessed ones, in spite of all the other things, holding on to the promises of Christ. He then told us that knowing that truth, knowing who we are, we are to live as salt, which preserves the decay and the death that we see all around us. And we are to live as light, which repels the darkness in the world. And he's now started, as we began last week, telling us, in a sense, where the rubber meets the road, how we actually go about doing that. How do we live as salt and light in this world? We can't fulfill the law. We know that. We know we fall short of the law. The law teaches us, tells us of our deficiency, a sense the gap that stands between us and God. 
But he did say that we have a life that he's given to us and through the power of the Holy Spirit called us to and we can live accordingly. Live in sync with the Spirit at work in us through our union with Christ. And so last week he began to unpack the law for his disciples They had heard that they should not murder, and he took that to explain that's the letter of the law, but the heart of the law says that even if you have anger towards someone, you've murdered them in your heart, and really helped us to see how wicked our own hearts are, because I know, as I professed last week, how often I get angry, how that bubbles up inside me, how I don't deal as well with others as I should. And so this morning, he turns to another area of our life, of how we are to live in accordance with his word so that we would bring glory to God. As I studied this text and considered all that it is saying in just really a few verses, verses 27 through 31, 32, excuse me, it really hit me the magnitude of what it is that Jesus is saying. I would suggest that in the year 2020... If there's, there's a number of things that we seem to have let go of, but there's definitely one where we have seemingly lost or at least let go of our calling to live as Christ would have us live is the area of sexual purity and marital fidelity. I don't have to tell you as you look around the world that there's a sexual revolution taking place in our culture. Things constantly moving. Gender or the lack thereof is the topic today, but think how quickly things have changed. I looked, I just thought back to when I was a child. When I was a kid, my mother wrestled with God for years, staying in an abusive marriage because she took God's word so seriously as it relates to divorce. The culture at that time, again, thinking when I was young, still maintained that marriage between one man and one woman was the standard that God had set for our good and for his glory. And now, I'm not that old. I know I might look it. In my adult life, just a number of years later, everything about what I just said has changed. Sadly, divorce is often treated no differently than a boyfriend and a girlfriend breaking up. The idea of covenant marriage is almost completely forgotten. It it is of a past time. The definition of marriage in the world's eyes is completely up for grabs. No one could even begin to try and define what the world would describe or define marriage with. And even now our culture is struggling to accept that God, as creator, created us male and female. All these things are just up in the air. And so we have to ask ourselves, as the people of God, how do we slow the decay of our world as the salt of the earth? How do we bring light into the darkness of this situation? Jesus is telling us through this text that we cannot look like the rest of the world. Again, he's taking these statements of the law, which he says, I am the only one who came to fulfill them and fulfill them, could fulfill them perfectly. But he's showing us what he intended for the world to look like. I've often said, and others much smarter and wiser than me have shared a similar idea. If the church 
had been more faithful to the teaching of Jesus, these words of Christ, in previous generations on a lot of subjects that are involved, we might not be seeing today the decay that we see all around us. It was the previous generation's lack of faithfulness to the word that got us in the trouble that we see all around us today. Imagine if we had taken sexual purity and marriage as seriously as we were called to, how things might look for us today. And I don't say this as any sort of judgment or condemnation on previous generations. But it is a reminder to us, a wake-up call, that it's our day to do What God has called us to do, to live as Christ has called us to live. And unfortunately, because of the sinfulness of the past, it is even much more challenging. And yet, as Sherry reminded us, we have hope. We have hope in Christ. We can have hope in Christ. And so today, no matter what exists in our past, we can choose today to follow the way of Jesus. We can follow him. So, what does Jesus have to say? Back in Matthew chapter 5, picking up in verse 27, about this subject. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in her, in his heart, with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than to lose your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus, once again, as he did in the previous text and thinking about the law calling us to not murder prohibiting murder and then addressing the heart of the law. He does the same here again when he comes to the law, the seventh commandment, to not commit adultery. He says that you have heard that it was said. And if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that, te- that message because there's, this, there's some unpacking that needs to be done when Jesus says you have heard that it was said. I won't go through the whole thing again, but the reminder is, is that these people who were hearing Jesus speak, they could not read the Old Testament for themselves. And so it was an oral transmission of the law that they had heard. And so when he says you had heard, he was saying, you heard what you were told. Let me tell you what I wrote, basically, and what the heart of the matter was. And so he says that you have heard that you should not commit adultery. That's the letter of the law. But he tells his disciples, it's not just to commit adultery. Let me give you an understanding of why God would tell us to not do this. The heart of God behind this. As I think about this understanding that we get from Christ and his explanation of, you've heard it said to not do this, but let me tell you the real meaning and purpose behind it. I immediately thought of how Jesus talked of the law. It's worth remembering that Jesus had said that he didn't come to throw out the law, but to fulfill it. And he had a reason for teaching on this particular subject. Notice he goes from, you shall not commit murder, to you shall not commit adultery. Those are not in order. He's sort of picking and choosing which items of the law he's going to talk about. And there's a purpose that he's doing this. It's helpful to remind us again that it's our saltiness and our litness, if that's a word, That we're here for a purpose. 
I have my coffee mug. I need to bring that out. It's salty and lit. It's a good day to be salty and lit, it says. To show the glory of God is what we're after. The reason he's instructing us in this way is that what he is calling us to do is to live in such a way that brings glory to God. And where do we do that most? Where is God most glorified? It's through our interactions with other people. As they look at our lives and they see a difference in us, a way of living that looks differently than everyone else, it causes them to at least ask why. And that question of why can lead, God can use that question in so many powerful ways. As we engage in the world differently than everyone else who knows Christ, it paints a picture. Think of it this way. You go into a restaurant. How many times a week do you go to a restaurant? You eat out for lunch, for dinner. Just think about all the times where you're in the public space. And for me, often meeting with you and the church and others, I am out quite a bit. And so I am in restaurants. I'm in coffee shops. I'm in all these various places. And as I think about the amount of time that I'm in the public square which is quite a bit, I think, on a daily basis throughout a week. I can at least a handful, three, four, five times a week, I'm in the public square. And do you want to know what often catches my eye? When someone, a family gathered around a table or an individual or two people, they pause to pray. Think about that. Because it's so uncommon In all of the times that I'm out in the public square, I rarely see someone pausing to pray before their meal or over whatever they're conversing about, whatever's going on. So much so that when I do see it, especially if it's a family, and I see a father leading his family in prayer, I want to jump up from my table and run and give him a high five. I glorify God. I'm like, thank you, Lord. You're at work in this family's life. But just think about the number of times that I'm out. That's so rare for me to see that. And it's because it's so rare that it causes in me a response. Imagine all of the rest of the world, how they see that. And I'm sharing that to just demonstrate or to illustrate how something as simple as prayer acknowledging that God is the giver of all good gifts before we consume the gift that he's prepared for us, how simple that is and what it can do in the world. Now, I hope you all pray and do all of these things, but this isn't a law to pray. This is just telling you or demonstrating, illustrating for a moment what it means and the power that we have when we live differently than the world because most of the world does not acknowledge the giver of all good gifts. It's funny, we just had Thanksgiving and I often reflect so many people rejecting the, uh, the reality of God, no matter what they might do with Christ, but just in general rejecting God and yet celebrating Thanksgiving. And I just want to ask myself, who are you thanking? Because God is the one who gives us all the things that we have. And so, if something as simple as prayer in a restaurant, in a coffee shop, can bring glory to God, how much more could sexual purity and marital fidelity bring glory to God in a world that has lost all sense of what it should look like and what God has called us to live with? So, Jesus, knowing the law, tells us the heart because God intends to glorify himself through us. So, Jesus gives us very clear instructions. You shall not commit adultery. But I say, 
to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Similar to the way, the way he connected anger and murder as being one in the same. In the same way he now connects lust and adultery in the same way. And ultimately what Jesus is doing is connecting, lust, or is connecting adultery to the law against coveting. See, it's not just a matter... He says adultery is not just a matter of a physical act. It's a condition of the heart and the mind. Now, God created us with the goodness and the capacity to be attracted to one another. That's not a bad thing. God did not create us in that way in order that we might turn that off. It's right that when I look at Laurel, I think good things. That's the way God created it to be. It's right that I think that way. Recognizing the beauty of another is not the sin that Jesus is addressing here. No, when he connects the dots from adultery and says, but even when you look at a woman with lustful intent, what he defines as lust, this is an action of the mind. It's taking that attraction To a place beyond where God intended it to go. It's allowing the imagination to run freely. And there's two reasons that Jesus tells us that this is wrong. Two reasons that are for our good that this is wrong. I just want to ask you. Does your imagination ever show you things going poorly? I especially speak to the young people in the room gathered online. If you're a teenager, I just want you to consider this in reality. Again, let me explain it this way. Every fall, I imagine the Cowboys playing every opponent. I sit down, I print out the schedule, and I go through each game. And inevitably, I land somewhere around a result of 13 and 3. It's always good because in my imagination, I can't imagine anything other than the Cowboys hosting the Lombardi Trophy. And I've done this, friends, for 25 years. Our imaginations don't envision things going poorly. We never imagine the negative things. We never imagine the heartbreak. It never starts bad. Because the imagination is the land of sunshine and roses. Everything's perfect in our minds. I never imagine a defense being that terrible. I never imagine Dak breaking a leg. These things don't pop up. This is why, again, as I said to young people especially, we have to keep our hearts and minds in check in this area of lust. It's so important Because our minds will take us places that our lives can never arrive at. We will create fantasies. That idea of the grass always being greener, married folks, that is what your imagination will do. It will tempt you to believe that there is something better that you could create for yourself. And you don't ever imagine the reality of the heartbreak that you will feel. See... God knows, and we must acknowledge, that our Heavenly Father knows best. See, Jesus connects the command against adultery 
with the command of coveting and covetousness. And ultimately, covetousness is believing that you know better what you need than God knows what you need. This is the second reason that this is bad. When we lust after another, we are coveting something our good Father in heaven has not intended to give us. We are desiring something that God did not intend. See, Jesus takes this commandment of adultery and merges it with the command against covetousness. And coveting is wanting something that we don't have. Wanting something someone else has. So the act of lust is an act of mentally taking something that doesn't belong to us. Something that God has not given us. See, this gets to the heart of the law. God has a purpose and a plan for his people in marriage. That involves sexual exclusivity. That involves a deep and knowing love that abides. That involves a commitment and a covenant that lasts in a world where things so often get broken. And see, Jesus knows the heart of man, and knowing God's plans for marriage are often disrupted by the sinfulness of our minds. He gives us this command and tells us that we must guard our hearts against it. And do you know that guarding your heart against the lustfulness of your mind and those temptations is an act of trusting in God? That's what it is. So Jesus tells us that we must realize that the heart of the law is that this connection between adultery and covetousness and this temptation to lust after things, individuals that we do not know. And so then Jesus gives us the prescription of what we are to do if we find ourselves fighting that battle, which we all ultimately will. This is one of those things, again, Jesus is picking these particular texts No, we have not murdered, but every single one of us, I think we could confess last week together, has been found angry at someone. Anger to the point of sometimes even thinking, I hate this person. And even again today, all of us have found ourselves not always committing adultery, the physical act, but in our minds, allowing our imagination to run rampantly. And to do things and to take us places that God doesn't intend us to go. And so Jesus tells us in verse 29, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus gives us very drastic measures. And of course our minds, there's some dots that we can easily connect here because we know that so often lust does begin with the eye. We look and we see and we begin to have an imagination. We begin to covet and think that we want something that God hasn't intended to give to us. And so we think, okay, it's the eye that is the problem. But as we really ponder what Jesus is saying here, we know that it's not ultimately the eyeball that is the problem. Is it really... The I that leads us to sin? Does the sin begin in my hand reaching out for something that isn't mine? We all know that's not true. See, there are words that Jesus, or there are times when we take Jesus' words literally. And this is one of those times when we need to understand Jesus' intent in what he is saying. And he is clearly giving us an illustration of how seriously we should take sin. There are stories, actually, of early Christians, by the way, doing this very thing, literally taking out their eyes, 
taking off their hands, castrating themselves in order to try and prevent themselves from sin. And do you know what their story ultimately tells? The sin continued because the sin doesn't begin in the eye and it doesn't begin in the hand. It begins in the brokenness of our heart. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that if we cut out our right eye, our left eye would immediately keep on sinning if it was about the eyeball. You know, I cut off a tree last, sometime last year. I cut a tree down at the stump and this was a, it really was a weed that just began to look like a tree because it had lasted so long. So I cut it down. But did you know that to my amazement, I just was down in the kind of the back part of our yard and I look down and I see this stump and there is a shoot growing up out of the side of this root, out of the side of the stump, a new life that's come forward. You know what the problem is that we have with sin? We don't want to do the hard work of really rooting it out. It's a lot of work. I can cut off a tree at the stump, but actually get the stump. Some of you have done that work. You know that is painful. That takes a lot of labor. See, I can cut down that ugly tree, but to totally kill this tree, I've got to get to the root. And see, what Jesus was saying is that he knows, if I tell you to take out your right eye, your left eye is going to begin to do the same thing. If I tell you to cut off your right hand, your left hand would immediately begin to do the same thing. What Jesus is teaching us when he says these words is how seriously we must take sin. All the labor that we must endure and take to eliminate sin in our life. By the way, just as an aside, this, is just, this, this one's just for free. Think of all the labor we endure to manicure and keep our lawns looking nice. Contrasted to the amount of labor and investment and time we spend with God trying to root out sin. We'll do anything to make the manicure look nice. But when it comes to dealing with the heart, we so often we want to push back that hard work. Once again, this is why just pastorally speaking, when I see you, so many of you doing the hard work of pouring into the word of God, committing your life to gathering together, doing these things. It's, it's, it's a thing that it does well up a pride in me, just a care and a love for you, because I'm thankful to God to see a people committed to living as Christ would call us to live and doing the hard work in order to do that. Sometimes following Jesus requires work. It requires a labor, an investment. So Jesus isn't speaking literally here, telling us to cut out our eyeballs or to cut off our hands. What he's telling us is that we must take seriously sin. As I've shared this quote before, we must be killing sin or sin be killing us. Every day, we have to acknowledge our, in our hearts our own sinfulness. And as we do that, we ultimately lift up Jesus. Parents, we don't keep our kids from sinning by eliminating the options through protection. Yes, there's a time and season for those protections as they grow. But ultimately, we help them live lives of holiness by making Jesus most Making him the most precious things. When Jesus is most valuable to us, all the other things take their proper place. Because Jesus is most valuable to me, I honor Laurel as her husband the way that God would call me to do that. I'm not lifting myself up as the perfect husband. She'll be here next hour and she'll tell you all the problems. But it's my love for Christ that keeps me pointing and, and, and striving to do all that he's called me to do. Committing to laying down my life for her. This is...
because Jesus is most valuable to me. Not because I'm just trying to get away from having to deal with the problems or the challenges or the, anything else. It's because I want to honor Christ. And so in the same way, if we're going to acknowledge or deal with this issue, we need to acknowledge our temptation to sin. And we need to take seriously that temptation. And we need to focus our minds and commit our lives to following Christ. Now, Jesus continues this teaching as he begins to speak about divorce. In verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. See, the Bible speaks often about divorce. And here Jesus is speaking about divorce and he's connecting this teaching again to this idea within the context of how we view one another and how we love and care for one another as husband and wife and what God intends a marriage to look like. And God intended that marriage be between one man and one woman for all time, for all of life. Now, the Bible speaks about divorce often, and I could do an entire teaching, by the way, just on marriage and divorce. That'll be another series for another day. I'm not going to do that this morning. But Jesus is, once again, as he deals with this, he's dealing with the sinfulness of man. See, the law given in Deuteronomy regarding divorce said one thing. And the Pharisees, mankind, and our sinfulness had taken that law. And by the time that Jesus is speaking these words, they had changed it around. And they said they've come up with this system of giving a certificate of divorce. In a sense, allowing it to take place. Making it more permissible. And of course, we have taken that even further in our day. The point that Jesus is making is, is that God's view of marriage is much higher than man's view of marriage. We too often view marriage as something purely physical, economic, something completely on a horizontal earthly plane, not realizing the purpose that God gave us in marriage to ultimately bring glory to Him. One of the things that I tell every couple as I meet with them preparing for marriage is I begin our time together, every couple, talking about the miracle of marriage and how God intends and can use a marriage that's committed to him to bring glory to his name and to allow the gospel to spread in places that I would never have an opportunity to take it. And so God has a very high view of marriage and we would be wise to see marriage the way God sees it. Now, I told you earlier, as my mom stayed in an abusive marriage for many years, wrestling with God over his word because she took God's words on marriage very seriously. And so I'll give you the same counsel that as an adult I once gave her. If you are married, see your marriage as God sees it, not to be treated Like some car that can just be traded out whenever something feels right or something goes wrong. But to recognize the importance of the marriage that God has given you. In the same way, if you've been divorced, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. Jesus has very strong and harsh words towards divorce. He does not have anything other than grace and mercy towards those who have sinned in their past. 
This is not something that is an unpardonable sin. And like those of us who have murdered through anger, committed adultery through lust, or even divorced in our past, our responsibility today is to look to Jesus, the only one who fulfilled the law. And we acknowledge our sinfulness before him. And in doing so, here's what I know to be true in my own life, and I promise you will receive, if you're listening to Jesus, you will receive his abundant grace and mercy. I'm going to close reading John 7, 53 through chapter 8. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. One who had been caught violating the actual law. Not just the heart of the law, but the actual law. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Whatever exists in our past, Jesus says, Go and sin no more, and look to his mercy and grace, and allow our hearts to be led to worship him recognizing that we would, again, God would be just to condemn us to hell, it says, for the things that we have done. And yet Jesus came and stood in our place and he went to the cross. He laid down his life, taking on the wrath that was due to me for my anger, for my lust, towards my mom for her divorce, perhaps. All of these things Jesus took on the cross. And so when we realize that and when we acknowledge that, our hearts are led to worship him. I can do nothing but praise Jesus for his grace and his mercy in my life. And as I do that, my eyes become more pure and they're less apt to look lustfully on other people. My heart becomes less callous and anger and I have much more patience and peacefulness about me. Not because I'm better, but because my eyes are fixed on Jesus and committed to bringing glory to his name. So let us again be a people, Christians in the world, living for God's glory, understanding that we are here for a purpose. And that purpose is to lift Jesus' name high. So let us go and let us sin no more and live lives of worship. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to be the people you've called us to be. Help us to perhaps not literally cut out our eyes or our hands, but to just be able to eliminate the sins in our hearts through the power of your spirit. Would you just cleanse us, Lord Jesus? Create in me, as the psalmist says, a clean heart, Lord. 
that lives for you. That brings glory to your name. That sees that as our sole purpose. Would you help us in that, Lord? We want to bring glory to your name, Lord. That's why we're here to worship you. And so we ask that you'd help us to live lives of worship in accordance with your word. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Before we dismiss, I just want to share with you just a few announcements, um, mainly some save the dates. First of all, this week, this Wednesday, again, students, we've been telling you over and over again our Disciple Now rally. So we want you to be here at 7 o'clock here in this room and uh, be able to be a part of the best weekend of the year. We're just believing that Jesus is uh, going to allow us to have a safe and awesome Disciple Now weekend. And so looking forward to that. Next week, ladies, December 6th is the cozy Christmas party. So you want to be here at 6.30 on December 6th. That's actually this week now, right? I think. I don't know what day of the week it is right now, but just know December 6th at 6.30, be here uh, for your cozy Christmas party. Bring a friend and a cozy gift to exchange. Definition of cozy is up to you. I'm going to leave that, but you can email Leanne, that's L-E-E-A-N-N at citychurchmelissa.com if you have any questions. And then uh, finally, two dates to also remember. December, they're both on December 12th. Um, one is we're going to be singing Christmas carols and kind of going throughout, uh, just enjoying a time of caroling um, in the community. So be available at 6 p.m. Also, at the same time, we are going to have a um, something that's called a hope service. And if you haven't been with us for the last few years, um, let me just explain this to you a little bit. But um, here's what I know. Having lost my mom, this will be my third Christmas without her. This is our third Thanksgiving without my mom and our family. And all around me, especially amongst the holiday season, going to pick out our tree, I remember doing that with my mom and um, so many things. And so while this season is a season of hope and joy, it also can be a season of hardship for those of us who have lost someone, whether that's recently or it could be a, a miscarriage 10 years ago that you still grieve and deal with. And so just want you to know that we want to create a, a time where we can just come together and lift one another up. And so we do this service every holiday season. It's called the Hope Service, just bringing hope to those of us who might be hurting through the holiday season. And so just want to invite you to be a part of that. If you have a friend, we've had a number of guests that have come, a friend or neighbor that you know that might have lost someone uh, this year or in the last year, um, invite them to come and be a part of that. We will just pray over one another, encourage one another, sing some songs, and ultimately remember the hope that Christ gives us in the midst of uh, the brokenness that we've experienced in this world. And so want to invite you to be a part of that. So with that, love you guys. Hope you have a great rest of your week. We'll see you back back here. Uh, I believe we don't have anything until next Sunday morning. So we'll see you back for worship again. Love you guys. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 830 and 1030 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane. And we look forward to seeing you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.